What's up? Today is first part of a two-part series, I guess. I had back-to-back interviews with Josh Duclo. Josh Duclo is a radio host for WHBY, and his show is called Fresh Take. And Josh does a lot of political discourse in Northeast Wisconsin. And he also has a national podcast where he focuses on national issues. This was recorded October 12th, 2020. So it was right before the 2020 election. And then this uh, next one was right before the inauguration. What's up, friends? What's up, friends? We're back. But why not? But why not? What is up, friends? I believe that we are live. This is a a learning process. Uh, I'm by myself today. We are virtually live with Josh Duclo, and um, I've been wanting to talk to Josh on the show forever. So Josh uh, does the fresh take on WHBY, and uh, you can find him on the radio, 11.50 a.m., 103.5 and 106.3 FM. Um, And Josh runs a show that is very, as he called it, um, middle of the road or or down the road. And it's really a local gem because there's actual real discussions and it's all focused on local topics. What made me reach out to Josh initially, or or initially in this case to set this up, was the last debate. So um, obviously a very uh, trying time I think it's it's more a long time coming and we're just like you know not comfortable with what we're seeing in the mirror after you know binge eating potato chips and dip and uh, maybe watching Netflix for the past what feels like 30 years or something and we're just coming to that reality but um, we're not going to dive into that right away I want to focus on local and uh, uh, and Josh himself so Josh welcome Evan, thanks so much for having me on the show. Definitely. Um, so first off, how are you? How are you doing in these times? Um, I am doing okay. Uh, I spent the first three months of the pandemic from March 13th, well, no, March 16th until June 16th, doing my show from my couch. Right here where you see me sitting, this is where I was broadcasting my show via a Skype connection to our studio. June 16th, I got to go back to the studio, but be in a separate studio from my producer for social distancing purposes. And just last week, I was sent back home again, but now I found out I will be returning to the studio later this week. So it's been kind of a roller coaster. I'll admit I hit the six month wall of like emotional trauma. I've heard and read some things about this that for people who are in really intense long-term situations there's a six-month wall that you hit where you just kind of lose your coping strength and and kind of fear that you're that you're losing it I lost it last week pretty bad Um, but got it back uh, went kayaking on the Fox River this weekend and that really helped to sort of rejuvenate me and I was looking forward to this conversation as well Evan because I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to bring some sensible discussion about political topics no matter where that's possible so I appreciate the invitation and uh, it's, it's given me something to look forward to so I thank you for that 
Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for coming on. And I heard about your kayaking trip and thought it sounded fantastic. Uh, it was like open day on the locks or something like that. And Yeah, that's right. The Fox River Navigation System Authority operates a couple of dozen old hand-operated locks on the Fox River system so you can go past the dams in boats. And it was my first time ever through and it was a free weekend to experience the lock. So I made it through one of the locks, paddled around in my kayak on a new portion of the river between Kimberly and Little Chute, got to see some nice fall colors, take in some of the new construction that's happening on the river and, uh, you know, work out the muscles a little, get some fresh air and some sunshine. Saturday was a beautiful day, perfect for kayaking. And uh, so yeah, I absolutely loved it. Awesome, yeah. Um... My thought when I heard you talking about that um, as I was preparing for the show was, isn't it funny how we can get so caught up in, in the details and, um, you know, the, the big picture and, and fear, really, it seems like at least. Um, but sometimes all it takes is connecting with your surroundings to, like, you know, bring that back into perspective, whether it's nature, whether it's local community, whether it's having a conversation with with a friend or a colleague or I'm sure in your show sometimes it's cathartic just talking to you know community members yeah absolutely and I think you're you're spot on there where we can get so caught up in the fight of the day or whatever the current drama or outrage is supposed to be and in my line of work I host a talk radio show I encounter a lot of those people who get really consumed with the negative and nasty side of politics and oftentimes it's not because they are a negative or nasty person it's because they see some something they perceive as injustice right something unfair has happened and they want to write that but that draws them into these debates and discussions that don't long stay civil right they get nasty and I th I've seen people kind of ruin their day, let alone their year, by getting all caught up in this stuff. And who we were talking before we came live, I have eliminated Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram from my phone. Um, I don't do much of any of the social media at all anymore, but for what is required of me to do my job, and that has contributed substantially to my mental health. But I do still have to make an effort to connect with people. And so I've reconnected with friends over the past six months that I hadn't talked to in years, and that has been a really rewarding part of this experience. I try to view the full picture, the ups and the downs, the pros and the cons. That's kind of the theme uh, of my approach to politics. And so that's been my approach to the pandemic as well. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I, I, in my own way, I have not disconnected mostly because of the business, but um, yeah. definitely. And I think this is like a common theme for sure. It was from, you know, March to June. I think a lot of people are taking, um, for sure were, hopefully still are, a reevaluation of uh, of what's going on in their personal life and and making what's right for them. Um, before before we keep he heading down that road, um, anyone watching, uh, it's really hard for me to test the audio. Let us know in the comments if everything is good or if anything's wrong. I can see the comments. Otherwise, I want to get into um, your history and how you got into. The, um, the political sphere on a local level. I know you were very, you kind of carved out your own position and uh, I, I'd love for you to kind of share that story and, and hear kind of how you got where you are. 
Yeah, I'll go all the way back, Evan, and begin in third grade. And for some perspective on my age, when I was in third grade, George H.W. Bush was running against Michael Dukakis for president. And I will never forget the day in third grade when we were instructed to make campaign posters, right, piece of paper, crayons, it's third grade, but to make campaign posters for our favored candidate. And it became very clear to me immediately that almost everybody in my class was gonna make a Michael Dukakis poster. And for some reason, that just meant automatically to me, I didn't even question it, that I was gonna make a George H.W. Bush play. <laughs> and I didn't, I mean, I was eight. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't have like a strong feeling on the stances of the issues or, or the partisan leanings of the candidates, but that was my very earliest memory of what I would consider my contrarian instinct. And whatever the, the dominant thinking is, whatever the controlling mindset is, my instinct is to challenge that, is to push back on that. And I call that contrarianism. And it, it's, it has led me to be, I believe, a bit more of a conservative person on my outlook to the world, because I see so many institutions, not the least of which is the mainstream media, that I view as having a left-wing bias. And so my instinct towards contrarianism has brought me to be a conservative because I often find that arguments from the liberal and progressive perspective in public debates don't always get the kind of challenge and pushback that conservative ideas do. And so that's just sort of a very early glimpse into what would become my now political identity, so to speak. But okay. the other formative experience was helping my dad campaign to be a village trustee. I live in it's I grew up in a town called Slinger, about an hour south of here. It's like five thousand people. When I was there, it was about three thousand people. And it's about thirty minutes outside of Milwaukee. Uh, not quite a suburb, it's further out than that, but I helped my dad get elected to village board. And that was my first glimpse into representative democracy, that the people who make the decisions and set the rules that we all live by are us. It's you and me, it's the people who choose to step up and serve and, and be chosen by their peers through a vote to be their representatives. And so I, I found that fascinating. I was always really interested in it. I would talk to my dad about the policies and issues that he was dealing with on the board, literally through like middle school and high school and well into college. He did three different stints on village board for a total of 30 years. And that was a big inspiration for me. Ultimately, I got to college, I studied history. I went on and got a master's degree. Well, I should say I went to college at Lawrence University in Appleton, mm -hmm. uh, which I'm very, very proud of and got my degree in history there. Went on to get a master's degree from UW-Madison in policy analysis. And so I was learning things like statistics and economics to apply to the process of making public policy. And then went and worked in state government for a few years. And that was the worst professional experience I've ever had. Because I got into bureaucracy and found it just soul crushing. That nobody wanted to get anything done. There was no urgency or, or a feel like there was an obligation to serve. It was more like running out the clock. And so then I got the opportunity to be a part of Governor Jim Doyle's team. And so I was a political appointee, literally working in the office of the governor as health policy advisor to the governor with no previous experience, either working for the governor in democratic politics or in health policy. But that didn't stop me from getting the job. And it was <laughs> terrible because I was not a partisan Democrat. And it was right around the time he was launching his reelection campaign. What I didn't know was my day job came with a free night job on the campaign, and I wasn't interested at all. So that only lasted a few months. But again, those were really formative experiences in shaping my perspective on politics. 
fast forward, I got a job at Lawrence University doing fundraising. That's what brought me back to the Valley from Madison. And did that for four years. I worked for Habitat for Humanity for a little while. I've worked for the Fox City's Chamber of Commerce in both economic development and government relations jobs. I worked for Fox Valley Technical College for a while. And that was when I ran for mayor of Appleton. I planned that run for quite some time, ran against the incumbent at the time, Tim Hanna, in 2016. And um, I felt like my campaign was successful, even though I didn't get the most votes, because during the course of the campaign, I negotiated to get my own talk radio show, which launched one month after the campaign was over. And I've been doing that now for more than four years. So that's the sort of professional path to where I am now. And if there's any of that you want to dig into more, um, I'd be happy to answer more questions about that. But that's kind of how I got to where I am now and some of the factors that shaped me along the way. Awesome. So uh, first off, a note on uh, on that negotiation for your talk radio show, that is... Uh, that, that is very entrepreneurial, in my opinion, and uh, I think, as you were talking about being a contrarian, to me, too, that's like, oh, that's like the roots of entrepreneurship, like, I could do this better, I could, I could do things different. Um, it's that urgency that you didn't see, and probably what, what got you out of politics in a lot of ways, you know, and you, you came in on your own terms, which I think is really cool. Um, yeah. Second, I think, uh, I think contrarian's a nice word, but um, what's the difference between contrarian and a hipster? What's where? where? <laughs> um, facts, <laughs> knowledge. I don't know. No, that's rude. That's rude. No, no. I don't. I don't. I, that was a joke. Um, to me, contrarianism is about wanting to provoke discussion. Right. I'm not a contrarian in the sense that I'm always opposed to everything. That's not the point. Mindless contrarianism, that's just like, that's to me, that's what I see in a lot of hipster culture. It's just like yeah. everything is terrible, nothing is good enough, Right, constantly complaining and undercutting and undermining. To me, a true contrarian is about pushing at the weak spots to make the whole body stronger. And frankly... This goes back to what I was talking about with my seeing left-wing bias in the media. I think Democrats are actually poorly served sometimes by the liberal bias of the media because then when they actually are challenged on things, they're not ready for it and they don't have good answers. And I've, I've experienced this myself in my professional world, um, both on the receiving end of questions and on the asking end of it. But I think there is a need for people to, to push back, to, to apply pressure, and to test hypotheses. Uh, uh, an idea that is never challenged is never developed. And an underdeveloped idea isn't as good as it could be. And so I think contrarianism, in its um, most productive sense, is about improving the overall by testing the weak points and making them stronger. Definitely. Oh, sorry. I'm like, I'm trying to watch this Zoom and like I'm getting a delay on my Facebook video and I'm like, wait, did he cut out? <laughs> Sorry. Um, You're all good, man. Yeah, so to, let's just, let's lean into that. I think, yeah. um, I, I agree completely. I consider, my, I, I use the word rebel, but maybe contrarian is like the most put together version of that term, I think. But you have an impulse, right? To say like, is that right? It's almost like answer, asking a question, like, is that correct? And I yeah. think maybe we're a hipster, <laughs> we'll go all the way with this, I guess. If sure. Where a hipster might say, like, might just apply a set of rules, like almost like a part of a club, uh, 
a contrarian or a rebel might say, okay, well, I'm going to look into this. Where, well, I guess a contrarian is going to look into it more, ask the question, what is this? Where the, and the rebel is just going to go full opposite no matter what side you're on. So yeah. I, I like the term. Um, so, okay. Sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, That's okay. I just had to stop my dog over here. No, you're good. So I'll, I'll go back then to the, uh, because I'm really curious about this because I saw an article, um, I saw an article about your campaign. I don't, I think I was looking into the mayor race, uh, this most recent one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I don't remember what I searched, but it was a 2016 article about your race. Um, and it was like, there was a picture of you and your mom hugging after the results. Yep. Um, and basically, I'm just curious as to like, what kind of an emotional journey like running for office is? Yeah, that is a great question. And, and that is exactly what it is, is an emotional journey. Um, I think I want to start by saying I wish more people would run for office. We're willing to explore running for office. And I'm not talking about president. I'm not even talking about Congress. I'm talking about things like school board, county board, city council. That's where we need more people running. And to your point about the the hipster contrarian dichotomy, we need people in those institutions who are willing to ask tough questions and and force good answers. And and that's really what motivated me. I had been involved um, as vice chair of the city of Appleton's planning commission for multiple years before I ran for mayor. And I'd been attending city council meetings. One of my favorite things to do was live tweeting city council meetings to give you a little sense of just how nerdy I truly am. (laughs) Um, And I loved it because I met people that way. I would prompt conversation. Um, I became the person that the new Post Crescent City Hall reporter reached out to to get a lay of the land and know what's going on. And my involvement in the city was not it was not self-interested, right? I didn't have anything to gain in doing that. I just felt passionately that the residents of this city deserved a high quality government and and high quality leadership. And the longer I stayed involved at those highest levels, the more I realized that I didn't think they were getting it. And to that point of being a contrarian, I was very realistic going into this campaign. I was running against a 20 year incumbent so I was realistic about my chances. I truly intended and wanted to win, uh, but I knew that that was a long shot given the realities of the situation. I had never run for any office in my life before, but I ran truly in the spirit of trying to make Mayor Hannah a better mayor. I wanted to talk about the issues I heard people discussing that I didn't hear coming out of debates in City Hall. And when I would raise some of these issues with him, I just didn't feel like he was giving them adequate attention or consideration. And so I felt like the best way to get his attention on the issues I thought were most important was to run against him and put those issues directly on the table. And in the course of my campaign, I would chalk up successes as rallying support, uh, producing really strong content for a campaign message and driving the campaign discussion. Like the issues I was talking about are the issues that got covered. And frankly, my favorite part of the campaign was the debates. Because obviously now I do talk radio, I love to talk, and I'm pretty quick on my feet as far as putting ideas together in sequence on the fly. And that's why I love doing spontaneous live conversations like this. And the debates were the best opportunity to do that. And I think gave the best opportunity to highlight my strength and my opponent's weakness. 
Now, his biggest strength was the fact he'd been mayor for 20 years. And so he had a very strong base of support. A lot of people felt like I was sort of getting out of turn, uh, like I should wait until Tim wanted to step down and then I could go run for mayor and that would be okay. Just let him finish up some things. And, and he was he actually said that on the campaign trail. That, oh, no, he needs to finish up some things first. <laughs> and you'll notice that he stepped down and didn't run again. And several of those things he was going to finish up still aren't done. Right. So I'll end my commentary on 2016 with that. Um, just to say, I felt like even though I didn't get the most votes, I still had a very successful campaign. And to your point, the fact that on election night, I was either going to be the mayor of Appleton or host a talk radio show, I felt like I couldn't lose. Yep, that's awesome. Yeah, um, that's beautiful. And I think the point that you started with is, is huge, too, is like, we need to get more involved. And I'm definitely guilty of this. Um, you know, I know a lot of people are. And that's even why I wanted to have this conversation is like, um, and, and this is kind of where I would like to go with this is like, okay, so, so we address, we address the political situation we're in right now on like the highest level of like the U S uh, federal government presidential election. And it's depressing. I don't think we have to, you know, dive into that. Um, I think you and I might both agree that, you know, even last election was depressing. And like the only reason this year is worse is because now we've actually seen Trump go through his thing that he was gonna, you know, that he ended up going through because everyone didn't think it could happen. Right. Um, the pivot we were all waiting for never materialized. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, my point is, so if we can move past that, what can we gain from getting more involved on a local level? And that's, that's, um, that's maybe broad. And then as a follow-up, can we, by getting more involved, be this, like, be, have an advantage, have some sort of cutting edge advantage as a community that leads by example, like, leads the rest of the country maybe like why is that too bold to say um and i guess that's kind of where my mind is at is like if we speak up if we get politically involved isn't that what it's all about can it be a bottom-up phenomenon and and i don't know i guess what are your thoughts on that yeah the way i take that question is sort of like what can we gain by getting involved and then what does the world gain from our involvement i'll sort of frame it in, in yeah. that way if, that, if that's appropriate Definitely. and i think the, the thing that an individual gains by getting involved actually like the, this is sort of there's the same answer to both ends of this because when you get involved one of the things you're going to realize is there are no easy simple answers like the only reason a question rises to the level of a political debate is because there is no obvious easy answer if the answer was obvious and easy to achieve, we wouldn't be debating. And so when you get involved, that's true at the local level too. <laughs> and, and I think the best illustration of that right now is the debate over in-person versus virtual schooling. Yep. School boards are local government. And those are elected officials in many cases, the school board, who hire professionals, the superintendents, et cetera, to make decisions on behalf of us. That's how government works. And there's a lot of people unhappy right now about the way these decisions have been made, a lack of dialogue, et cetera. And I think if the people who want to see changes made were to put their money where their mouth is, so to speak, and actually run and be on the school board, the first thing they're gonna realize is it's not as easy as they thought it was. 
And so this I say up front because I think that those of us who comment on politics, the fact that I was a candidate helps me do this more than most commentators. We need to recognize that the public servants, the elected candidates and officials, they are in a really tough spot right now, particularly right now, given the tense partisan nature of our politics. And so when you get involved, one of the things you're gonna benefit by knowing is this is actually really complicated. But the next thing you're gonna learn is how things actually get done. And I don't just mean passing a law, because passing a law is great, if it doesn't have an uh, implementation phase, it's pointless. Uh, and I would illustrate that with the face mask mandate, which great, however you feel about it, I'm pro face mask, but there is no enforcement. And so if you don't have enforcement, you don't really have a policy. Yeah. And so for people who get involved in policy debates, I often, again, my master's is in policy analysis. And so I have a very deep understanding of what it takes to actually make a law into actual policy that people are living by. And oftentimes when I discuss politics and policy with people, with debate things, and they'll make proposals for policy, and it's like, yeah, that's great. How are you gonna get people to follow that? Right? Are you gonna send police to people's doors? Or you know, how are you gonna make that happen? And when you're an actual elected representative and you're involved, frankly, even before you are elected into a position of power, even just attending the meetings and knowing what's going on and understanding the issues, it's gonna become very clear, it's very complicated, and the mechanisms for implementing policy are not as effective and efficient as you might think, right? Government has a lot of weaknesses and implementing policy is one of them. Because we're humans, we make mistakes, we have instincts and uh, you know, we, we, we do dumb stuff, we're humans. Yeah. So I think those are two big benefits you get from getting engaged, whether that's by running or just getting engaged, and that's all at the local level you can learn that stuff. The community benefits when more people get engaged because it goes back to that contrarian idea, uh, an idea that isn't challenged, isn't developed. And so the more perspectives you have in the conversation, the more people who come to the meeting and offer questions and critical takes and, and challenge their leaders to find this and answer that and can we do this, maybe the answer is no. But if nobody asks the question and they never look into it, we don't know. And so I think the community benefits by having more people engaged because the outcome of the debate is stronger when more perspectives are uh, uh, taken into account in the development of that process. And to your point about being sort of a leader of the nation, we as a community are incredibly rich in things like ethnic diversity. I know not compared to some communities, but for a community our size, we have a lot of ethnic diversity, refugees and uh, immigrants from all over the world who make their home here, not to mention uh, people who've come from Mexico and areas south of the border, um, people who grew up here, uh, but used to be much, much smaller minorities than they are now. Right? We're seeing uh, a real growth in all over the country, but especially here in Northeast Wisconsin, a growth in the diversity of our population, but not just ethnic and racial diversity, ideological diversity educational diversity, right? People who are educated in technical schools, people who are educated in the skilled trades, people who have liberal arts degrees like I do, lawyers, accountants, people like that. We've got tons of people like that. We've got some of the highest concentration of Fortune 500 companies of any community our size in Nina. Right. And if we can get more of those human assets engaged in the process of improving our governance, we could be a model to the nation. In fact, when I worked for this Fox Cities Regional Partnership, we hosted a group of what's called site selectors. 
they coach businesses on where to open new factories and locations. So they are professional um, researchers and location, right? They know place better than anyone. We brought them here and they were blown away on so many different things, the collaboration between business and nonprofits, the collaboration between business and government, education, like they just couldn't believe that some place was actually doing this stuff every other community was talking about, but they saw it at a highest level operating right here. One of them even suggested we should become the nation's center for best practices in intergovernmental and business uh, public-private partnerships. And so to your point, yes, if we were to leverage all of our human assets here, I think we would be a model to the nation. Yes, I'm, I'm so glad you said that because like you being in that position to hear those conversations and those words being said is like, it's what everyone wants to say but doesn't know how to say it. It's like part of me feels like it's almost a travesty that we're <laughs> exposed, that so much of our community is exposed to the national level conversation because it's so toxic. And it's like, if you just turn inward, not even all the way inward to, you know, just your individual self, but just to your community, it's like most people here don't fight. And it's like the toxicity, like there's real good conversations. Like you said, there's the public-private partnerships, there's jobs, there's hope, you know, which a lot, which maybe is what you know, is manifesting at the highest level that there are a lot of places in this country that don't have that. And like, if anything, I feel like if we can find our voice as a region, Northeast Wisconsin, and come together, you know, the way we, we always do, but maybe in a way that's broadcast and maybe that's just my media background that's saying that, but I think, I think it could be a, a powerful thing and, and like you said, I think we could be a model to the nation as as almost confident as that sounds coming from, you know, a community of, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm in Appleton right now sure. as we speak, community of 70,000 people in a region of 2 million people. Um, definitely. I just think, I just feel like, why not try, you know? Well, I would, I would point to the U.S. Venture Open as proof that it happens here, right? Where else do you get a golf outing that can raise over $4 million in a day? We do that here. It's us. We do that. And any community in the country would love to have the capacity to do a fraction of that. And we do it every year because a family invested in our community makes it happen. And then they recruit the partners from other community-minded businesses, and they've got a cause of basic needs that motivates the generosity of not just businesses, but individuals, countless individuals who make that happen. Millions of dollars every year flowing into the nonprofit sector then that helps make sure those most in need in our community are getting most of those needs addressed. And yeah, I think if we, you know, it's tough because we, we combine the strengths we just talked about with what we well know to be a Midwest humility that I think is both appropriate and necessary for our success, but it makes it challenging for us to tell our story. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It is, it is the humility, just like, I don't know. We've just been so like, it's like the gratitude shows, you know, it's like, um, 
there's gratitude and there's not a lot of, as the kids would call it these days, flexing. And it's like people are, you know, even the, the most fortunate among us in this region don't, you know, they don't flex it. They don't, um, they're very generous. And uh, it is a special place and I hope, uh, I honestly like, just as a, a person doing what I view to be newer media, um, like I definitely take that approach. Like how can we, how can we show what we have in a way that's, you know, of interest beyond yeah. just the region, you know? And Evan, I want to c- congratulate you and point out I, what you're doing in broadcasting the stories that you are through social media platforms, you are part of doing exactly what we're talking about, is showcasing to the rest of the world what is so special about this place. And frankly, I'm doing talk radio, but my show is available as a podcast. Wherever you get podcasts, search Fresh Take. You can subscribe and get every episode every day. And I have listeners that I know of in California. A friend of mine that I went to college with listens regularly. He skips over some of the local stuff because that's not as relevant to him. But he just loves getting the perspective of people from here in the Midwest and listening to some of the decision makers out here because it's a totally different world than the one he lives in. And so through what both of us are doing, just putting our content out into the world the way that we are, thanks to the technology that both giveth and taketh away, as it were, in the positive and the negative of social media, um, we're able to tell those stories. And unfortunately, we're we're, uh, sending them out into a very cluttered media landscape. And maybe we'll come back to that at some point. But I do think we are doing what needs to be done. It's just about breaking through the noise in ways that can be very difficult, no matter what the topic. Definitely. And I think um, that's where patience comes in, you know, because ultimately, a lot of a lot of that is is off of you know consistency and relationships so yeah i mean I, i'm definitely no, no matter where i end up um like this is home you know and and ultimately i think i think we're gonna get somewhere special hey let me ask you hey, did you grow up in this area yeah um I, I know you're not asking for this whole background but um my grandparent like so my parents grandparents um like on both sides pretty much like all all four of them or whatever or four sets of them i guess um were farmers in this region so mostly mostly german immigrants i think that makes me one like fourth fourth generation in northeast wisconsin something like that um if, if, I don't know if that means anything to yeah, anybody, but... Well, no, that's, that's interesting because yeah. I have found, because I'm not from this area. As I said, I grew up in Slinger about an hour south of here, so yeah. just a little bit ways away. Um, but when I came to this community, I felt like I saw some of the things that people who'd grown up here kind of had become accustomed to. Yeah. And that's something that I think we, we fall victim to when we take for granted some of the things that we've just always lived with here. And, you know that collaboration we we're talking about some of the other stuff it's easy to take that for granted when it's always been the way it is and so sometimes it takes people coming in from outside like those site selectors or, or like me transplants who come here to really see truly how special this place is definitely yeah some of my favorite interviews are talking to people who ended up you know moving here whether it was a spouse or a job or whatever who yeah. aren't, aren't from here because they're always like 
they're always more grateful, it seems like. And and it's, you know, I, I see a lot of the, the great things because because ultimately, like, I don't know, I think I was interested in, like, my grandparents' history and asking them questions about stuff. And then ultimate, like, I just got interested in stories. And also the fact that, like you said, the people here, which were my high school friends and, and some college friends at the time, weren't appreciative of it. And I actually, I went elsewhere. Like, I went to Arizona where I had some family and I liked how they would just like, they appreciated their surroundings and like they would go out and play soccer and um, you know, hike and bike and whatever. And so when I came back and it was just like Netflix and, and beer, um, I was kind of like, no, there's stuff here. Like, let's, let's go like see, let's go find it. Let's go point it yeah. out and be a part of it, you know? Yeah. Um, you brought your transplants eyes that you, uh, you know, tweaked and honed in Arizona and brought that and applied it to Wisconsin. Exactly. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so let's riff on the on the being a, a national leader kind of idea for a second, if you're if you're willing. Yeah. Um, so we have the framework in Northeast Wisconsin in place from, a, from an economic standpoint, which is ultimately one of the hardest ones to put in place. And it's, it's one of the things people struggle with the most. And the generosity, you know, is also, um, so you get the economic, but it's like, where, where do you get it from? And then can you, can you get that engine to feed back into making the place better? Right. What could we do better? And what do you think we could do better? Maybe from a, maybe it's policy, maybe it's, um, you know, maybe it's involvement, maybe it's development. Um, if, you yeah. had, if you had a dream scenario where in five years you could make whatever you want happen. Well, I will dig into the past for my mayoral campaign and talk about enhanced regional collaboration. And uh, this is an idea that I first heard about when I was visiting Denver. Um, when I worked for the Fox Cities Regional Partnership, we did a visit to Denver to learn about the way that they structured their metro economic development partnership. So you have the city of Denver and then these surrounding communities, and they created a metro partnership where they were pooling resources. So literally one community's money would go and build a project in a different community because they were all in it together and they saw how sort of the rising tide lifts all boats sort of idea. And we, we, we put a lot of lip service towards intergovernmental collaboration and, you know, oh, nobody knows when they're crossing the municipal boundaries, we're all just one big community. And yeah, true. But we really don't have an effective structure for executive collaboration between local governments. So the mayor of Appleton, the mayor of Nina, the mayor of Menasha, the mayor of Kakana, the administrator or the president of Little Shoot and Kimberly, right? We've got more than a dozen communities just in the core Fox Valley, let alone the three county region. And then you could include Green Bay to Oshkosh. And there is not an effective way that government leaders can collaborate with each other and then interface directly with business other than in kind of ad hoc project-based ways. And so in Denver, they had this thing they called the Denver Regional Council of Governments, 
or DRCOG, Dr. Cog, they called it in the wonderful you know, government uh, acronym game. Uh, but they had this regional council of governments. And I would love to see an actual formal body. It would not have any actual governing power, but it would be a platform where elected leaders from all the communities here in our region, define that however you want. Frankly, it could be the whole new north, right? The 17 counties from Fond du Lac up to Florence and Forest. You could have regional government councils, you could have sub-regional government councils where elected leaders are regularly focused on working together and learning from each other. This happens in ad hoc ways all the time, but I think if we wanted to go next level, that's the kind of model we could put in place because then that becomes the platform for additional interaction with business leaders or with nonprofit leaders or addressing community needs or you know trying to keep a community united during very divisive political times. Something like that that speaks to the strengths we've been talking about and recognizes that local government is not a partisan endeavor or it should not be a partisan endeavor. In Wisconsin, it is specifically a nonpartisan endeavor. And if you'll forgive me a brief tangent, if anybody wants to know how to tell if an office in Wisconsin is partisan or nonpartisan, if it's elected in November, it is a partisan office. If it's on the ballot in the April spring election, it is a nonpartisan office. So like mayor, April, Congress, November. Things like county executive are April. <laughs> Even though many of our county executives are wanton partisans, their office is technically nonpartisan. Meanwhile, the register of deeds is a partisan office. So it's weird. It's, it's a little ad hoc and it's very old school. It goes back to when the state was founded in our constitution. Okay. Constitutional officers are partisan. Anything else is not. And so local governments are nonpartisan. To try to build on that, they could collaborate better. And I think that would actually do a lot to help us sort of approach that next level of greatness. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> so I have conversations like that all the time. Probably not with... So I don't have many political people in my circle. You know what I mean? So, but I 100% agree so as soon as you're ready to uh to to run us to where we need to go i, I don't know how i don't know how this starts but i think i think uh and what's weird is like there is a little vestige of like uh a rub when you kind of look at like could that happen but i don't i think it could happen I think the I think the region is is open to it. Yeah. And frankly, to your point of, you know, when I'm ready to lead us there, you're ready to follow. I think this is the sort of thing that's only going to come when elected leaders are pressed to do it by their constituents. So this is the kind of thing that everybody has to want. The problem is it's a little bit of an esoteric idea, right? It's not the kind of thing that people intuitively are like, we want a regional council of governments. Right. <laughs> the same way they want their trash picked up or, or you know, a nice park by their house. Um, and so it's difficult to, to get the, the kind of groundswell behind it. Um, but given the way that, you know, the, the dysfunction from the federal level seems to be flowing down to the state and now even to the local level, I'm hopeful that there will be an appetite 
appetite for that in the future. And, you know, when, when that time comes, frankly, from my show, it's the kind of thing I talk about is the need to collaborate and, and listen to people across the aisle. I don't take my show as a soapbox for advocacy of like specific ideas like this, particularly yeah. not in a, a climate like this right now. Um, as we were talking about before we came on, basically anything you do that is exposed to the public now is going to draw criticism from at least one person for good or not so good reasons. Um, so right now I'm just trying to host discussion and, and make people um, come together and listen a little bit more to ideas they might not always be exposed to. Um, maybe at some point I'll be ready to, to advocate for some big ideas like that. But frankly, I would like to see some of our local leaders be the ones to, to take that leap, right? To, to take that step forward. And and maybe that's even members of Congress. If, um, if we've got members of Congress who want to run for governor, they could certainly be the ones to initiate that sort of thing. And one of the ways you could easily do that from the state level is to provide funding for technical support for the formation of such councils. They yeah. would need staffing and et cetera. And if the state would subsidize that funding, that would be a great way to try to get these local governance to, uh, to work together and build those regional councils. That could be, that would be insane, I feel like, in terms of like potential upside that's literally you know it's it's building bridges ultimately i will say and not you know now that i'm putting it out there um there is still risks involved obviously you have to have the right people or um you, you know you could just get another stagnant yeah, that, that's true. That's and that really does emphasize the need for good candidates at the local level. And again, I think one of the biggest things driving good people away from running for office, even at the local level, is the approach that some people take towards candidates and a lot of media outlets take towards candidates where they think their job is to find every possible piece of dirt on this person <laughs> and put it out there because the voters deserve to know. Right. And I'm not gonna say that's not true, I would say that the role of media in a campaign is a lot bigger than that. And I don't often see media rising to that challenge. They're sort of in the uh, shiny squirrel mode of chasing you know, the, the latest controversy. And, you know, oh my gosh, so suddenly we find out this person had an affair. Okay. Yeah. Does, does that mean they can't be a good mayor or a good congressman or whatever? Maybe. But is that the only important thing we should consider? I don't think so. And so I think the way that candidates and campaigns get covered actually has a lot to do with the way that people feel about running for office. Do you think that that's a, like that that media shiny squirrel thing, do you think that that's uh, an issue of kind of like conglomerate media? Like basically yes. like the big companies that came in and bought every local TV, every local newspaper, every local whatever, yeah. And it's just like, you know, just an offshoot of that, that national narrative of like divide and, and conquer kind of like. Yeah, it's not only because of that. Um, yeah. Like I'm not an anti-corporate person, but yeah. I do think the way that corporate consolidation in media works is you are buying more assets. And the way that you make money on that is by having fewer input costs to the output. And so when USA Today bought all of the local papers from Wisconsin, guess what happens? A lot fewer reporters get employed at local papers because the article from Manitowoc can run in the Appleton paper. And that's exactly what USA Today Network Wisconsin does. Yeah. So not only does it lead to a, a greater focus on national or higher level stories, because the audience for a national story is 50 times larger than the audience for a state story. 
and a state story audience in Wisconsin is 72 times larger than any story at the county level. And I'll spare you the math on the locals, but <laughs> in Wisconsin, we have 1,852 cities, villages, and towns. Those are the units of local government that you vote for a mayor or a village president. Those are the ones who pick up your trash. And that doesn't count school boards. <laughs> that, you know, that's, those are all separate. So this is a, a proliferation that atomizes the audience. So if you're trying to make money by covering the politics of a community, if that community is small, it's gonna be really hard to make money on that. And yeah. so we've now become a national community and national media covers almost exclusively national politics. And so to that end, it's actually really easy for people to find national media coverage of politics. It's a lot harder to find good coverage of local politics in the media because it's just not as commercially viable. And you, one of the questions you had floated to me ahead of this was like, shouldn't media be standing up and rising above and you know advocating for the future, et cetera? Sure, that'd be great. That's not their business model. Yeah. Right? Their business model is driven by clicks and, and uh, extending your engagement, right? Getting you to stay on their page for 20 more seconds. Did, and did you and see... that's a world that I don't even understand how they do this. But like I've noticed now, when I go to leave a page and I move my mouse up to the top of the screen, suddenly a pop-up shows up trying to keep me on the page a little longer. Yeah. Those are the commercial realities of the media landscape in the 21st century. And they all, in my opinion, work against depth of coverage, engagement in issues, thoughtfulness, even-handedness. I mean, our media is, is hot take entertainment central, right? That's yeah. all it is because that's what gets clicks and clicks drive revenue. So, so to the extent that the business model doesn't reward depth and insight, we're not gonna get it. Yeah, so I, I agree with that, um, that it's all entertainment. It's, it's so wild. Um, and, and I have a, a question for you on a, a piece of, on a documentary that recently came out related to that. But I, I just wanted to share my hot take here. After, watching, after watching the debate, uh, it was literally like watching NFL coverage. It was like they showed a stadium after the debate. They would cut to like a stadium with like banners and it's like uh, they were using like fight language like Trump versus Biden. Um, and then the, even the music they were playing was like Fox NFL Sunday. It was like, you know, and I was like, are you kidding me? And then yeah. they were, here's where it got even better. Then they started going to polls and they were counting points. They found a way to make it into point, a point game. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. They turned the presidential election into the NFL. Like this is America's like you know, spirit animal. This is like our self-image is like football, you know, like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you're exactly right. Is the way that sports analogies and war analogies um, apply to politics is not helping us get deeper and more nuanced in our understanding of the political issues at hand. Um, and, you know, the, the whole idea of like the instant snap poll of who won the debate. Yeah. I sure would love to know the criteria these people use to determine who won. And I'll tell you, it, it's more than a coincidence that the who won the debate poll exactly reflects the current national presidential preference polls. Exactly. 
Right. So it wasn't who won the debate. They could have just asked, who are you going to vote for for president? And you got the exact same results. Exactly. So right. There's the, that kind of shallowness is all over in politics. After I just, you know, crapped all over the media, I will point out one bright spot that I have found. It's only been around for a year, and so a lot of people still don't know about it. It does come from a conservative perspective, so fair warning to anyone out there for whom that's going to be traumatic. But it's called thedispatch.com. And they were formulated by some people who had been around for a long time in a lot of different conservative media circles. Um, and they didn't like what they saw happening in the conservative media landscape. And so they started something different. It's very fact-based. It is anti-hot take. They do lots of podcasts as well as original reporting and a daily morning newsletter that just summarizes the news. And for me, it is essential reading. The Morning Dispatch, I read it every morning and it's how I know what's been going on in the world because I don't have the time to skim 15 different news websites and try to you know, sift the value from the noise. Um, and so the dispatch.com is one website that I would recommend people check out. Again, it does have a conservative perspective, but that is not, um, don't think you're gonna find, you know, like uh, Breitbart or Rush Limbaugh there. That's yeah. not the point there. Uh, explicitly anti that, but they are bringing a conservative perspective to, to um, even-handed news coverage and putting issues out there uh, for people to read about. And again, especially I think if you find yourself reading more um, liberal sites, like if you're reading a lot of Slate and Daily Coast and Salon and some of these, I would encourage you to go check out the Dispatch and try to what I call diversify your media diet. Because the more perspectives you hear, again, just like the decision-making at the local level is better when you have more diverse perspectives involved in the discussion, the same thing is true of your own decision-making. If you are informed by a more diverse array of perspectives, your own decision-making is going to be better informed and result, theoretically, in better decisions. Definitely. Awesome. Um, I get, uh, I get a, a newsletter. I think it's like brew the daily brew or something like that but it's very economic focused yeah but it's, i've heard of that one it's very uh it's also center so thanks for sharing that um yeah. i think it's, it's great for people to know and and it's it's almost more telling that it's prop coming up now you know it's like we almost need something that's new we can we can't rely on what, something that's been around for 40 years to just come out of nowhere, you know, other than the onion or, you know. <laughs> um, well, you know, that's a, that's a really interesting point, Evan, because I think new media is really challenging legacy media, like the New York Times or ABC, CBS. You know, there was a time before you or I were around when there were only three TV stations yeah. and like a couple of newspapers. Like that was it. If you wanted to get information, that those were your options. We are far from that reality, and we are not going back. It's yeah. never going to be like that again. And so we can't expect to get that same kind of result from an environment like that from the environment we have right now, because that's just not the world that we live in. And so we need to, I think, move towards something new. To your point, innovate our, our way into something better. And that's exactly what the dispatch was. This was people who were just being entrepreneurial. They've got a membership subscription business model, and they were hoping to get 4,200 subscriptions in their first year. They are cl closing in on 20,000. Nice. And I'm one of them. I pay $100 for a one-year subscription that gets me some members-only content, including live Zoom calls and eventually events. But I won't be able to go to the events. They're all based in D.C. So the live Zoom meetings are great for me because I can actually uh, engage with some of these really, really smart, thoughtful people who are totally plugged in on the stuff I care most about. 
I live alone, and so it's really nice. <laughs> I must listen to four or five hours of podcasts a day, Evan. So I've replaced wow. a lot of TV in my life with podcasts because I find it's much easier to curate a sensible and reasonable mix of perspectives using podcasts than it is on TV or any other platform. Do you do you take those podcasts on walks and stuff? Uh, no, I sit in my living room and I listen to them. I, I'm not kidding. I know. I believe you. I'm going to yeah. tell you I recommend if, if you have – take one of those podcasts on a walk with you and it will it will help your I, I mean I'm not a psychiatrist but it <laughs> it might help with mental health I'm not kidding you it, yeah no I believe that yeah. for sure when I go outside on walks with my dog I try to stay connected to nature okay, like I, so, I hate having okay. headphones on when I'm out outdoors even on my kayaking trip I thought about taking podcasts with me to go kayaking yeah and I didn't want to do that because I wanted to be more present in the nature um, but you're right. I, lots of people take the podcast with them, and um, I'm just lucky that I live by myself, so I can basically like blare my podcast all Saturday afternoon, and <laughs> nobody seems to mind. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so on the lines of um, shoot, lost my train of thought again. Basically, it was about the business model that we were talking about of media being mm -hmm. clicks. Um, this is not a new idea, and and it's it's coming more into the public consciousness. I think. Uh, have you seen the social dilemma? Yes. Okay. I was going to ask you about that if you didn't bring it up. Nice. Yeah. So, like, what's your? So it's interesting because because my take on it is, uh, well, okay, not my take on it, but my uh, familiarity with it is, you know, the kind of dude with the dreads his name's like jaron in there he's kind of like the most interesting um looking i guess in terms of like how he presents himself yes he i was familiar with his ideas for a few months before this came out and um he's got some really great takes so anyway what i'm getting at is i haven't watched the whole thing i watched the last 10 minutes based on a, i saw a tweet of someone i respect Okay. Um, that said you should watch the end of this so I did and um, my point is is that that Jaron guy has he's been in Silicon Valley from the beginning and he knows like he's he helped start virtual reality like bring it to where it is now and um, I think it's really interesting his thing is like I don't like I don't hate these people I like I hope you don't hate these people these are my colleagues right. um, I, I love what Silicon Valley stood for, which is like, can we bring goodwill to, uh, you know, fast growth economics or something like that? And, uh, but he's like, S we just need to re-question the manipulation factor and the business model. Like we, we need to come in and say like this, we can have this, this is good, but we just can't have the, the manipulation and the manipulation is the ad platform playing on our you know playing on our subconscious drives ultimately it's like we don't want to be we don't want to be id driven people you right. know as a so, yeah so let me ask you how much would you be willing to pay each month to be able to access facebook if all of the ads and algorithms and manipulation and harvesting of your data didn't happen. Because that's the only way it would happen. Because that's know. right now how they pay for Facebook, right? I know. Is they sell your data. Yes. So how much would you be willing to pay to get a, a non-manipulative Facebook? So 
if it's if it's just so then there's the trick is like you have seven major platforms that we all exist on you know if not you know slightly more sure you know we have youtube facebook uh instagram tiktok whatever would i be willing to pay honestly i feel like i would pay as much as i pay for my phone i feel like personally especially since i run a business on it right and um I'd, I'd be willing to pay, like I pay Adobe for my software to edit videos a hundred bucks a month. I would, sure. I would easily be willing to pay 200 bucks a month. I don't think I'm normal in that regard. I would expense it because I have that entrepreneurial mindset. A lot of other people, it's, a, it's another utility, it's another tax almost, you know? Um, so let me push on that just a little bit more because you said you run a business on Facebook and so for you, you can write it off. It's a business expense. You find ways to make money using this platform. If everybody had to pay to use Facebook, your audience would shrink on that platform. And so then it becomes a less valuable platform for you to run your business. Your business isn't as profitable because now your audience has shrunk because there's essentially a cover charge to get into Facebook. And so I'm not saying this is better or worse. I'm just saying like when you change one little thing, you can't just say, okay, everything stay the same, but we're taking this one piece out. Yeah. Right? That piece is fundamental to how the whole thing works. And so I would love for social media that doesn't harvest my data, but frankly, my data is already getting harvested. This was my big takeaway from the social dilemma, the movie. They are very, very worried about the extent to which these handful of companies, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, take our data and then sell it and use it without our knowledge. Yeah. That is troubling, but they are not the only ones who are doing it. They might be doing it at a higher level. They certainly are doing it at a much grander scale than any other company is. But like most companies you've ever bought something from, they've got a file on you. And, and if you ever wanted to, frankly, again, uh, political campaigns know this very well, you can go buy reams and reams of consumer data about people that has nothing to do with their online activity. So this idea that we are being mined for our data is not unique to social media or the online world. Yeah. And I think they overhype that threat in what's essentially a myopia. They, they're just getting a tunnel vision yeah. on the high tech world. So, and it's not new. So just to... Just push back a little bit yeah I, I agree um that it isn't new and like honestly just you saying that kind of opened up me to be like okay well right maybe the problem is bigger than that or something that's what first came to my mind but maybe maybe this is where it's valuable that i haven't watched the whole thing and that i only know that one guy's take because that one guy's take is that it's not as much the selling the data that's the problem it's it's honestly, it's the ad platform that makes, that has provided so much opportunity for businesses to blow up because of like the, the direct specific targeting. Right. That, that's what he calls the manipulation engine. And the manipulation engine is basically taking these things that, cause like um, when you're scrolling TikTok, like, like my wife gets, uh, uh, tips on parenting we don't even have kids but like what is that saying about you know her id um and my little brother gets videos of you know cute girls dancing and like what you know what i mean right and, and as much as both of them would probably like to say like um 
if you ask what kind of media they would like to be consuming more of, my brother would probably tell you something along the lines of learning about business or something. And, right. and my wife would probably tell you like learning some skills or, um, you know, something like that. So the manipulation comes in that like, <laughs> we don't even necessarily get, we get a say, but it's like, how strong can you expect anyone's self-control to be? So it's just this like, almost like a sandpaper on our collective self-control, just like slowly moving back and forth. Like, yeah, I don't disagree with any of that. And I, and I do think particularly, so I turned 40 this year. And so I'm like right on that cusp of like, I was literally in high school before I ever had anything on the internet. I was in college before I ever used a sort of online chat program. So I'm sort of on the older end of all of this. And so it's, I think a little different for me than some people who've grown up in this, where they've only ever known an environment and a world that exists with Facebook and, and some of these other platforms. But I would mention my experience with online advertising for some reason I can't quite figure out, a couple weeks ago, suddenly I started getting a ton of ads on websites in Chinese. <laughs> sure. And I have no idea why. So my question is, do I secretly want to learn Chinese? <laughs> or are these algorithms behind the scenes actually not as good at what they're trying to do as we think they are? You yeah. get what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I, like if your brother really wants to learn about business and they keep showing him cute girls, what they're doing is they don't know a thing about your brother. They're just, they, what they see on the other end of that phone is a male in his twenties equals show cute girls, right? That's how simple some of this stuff is. So I guess I just want to caution us from thinking we're like these slaves to digital technology and we just can't control anything because to me that actually is an outlet for people to then um, relinquish responsibility yep. for their own decision making and I think that's incredibly dangerous I and think, it is fueled by much of this but I think we sometimes lean into that as a way of uh, not feeling responsible Josh that might be the whole thing is just like responsibility and trying to push it off on something else yeah yeah, and frankly, I see that in politics all the time. You you mentioned something really insightful earlier when you said people uh, or, or our campaign conversations and debates are oftentimes animated by fear, right? The emotion is fear. And I think you're absolutely right. And more and more every day, I see proof of that. And one of the ways that manifests itself is people are no longer actively engaged in politics to advocate for an affirmative outcome. They're not in politics to make X happen. They are in politics to stop X from happening. They fear X and they want to do whatever they can to stop X from happening. And anybody who wants X is clearly evil and wrong, right? And that feeling has polluted our politics. The concept of negative partisanship is where you're not voting for a candidate. The person you're voting for is because you do, you're trying to vote against the other person. And, you know, back to the conversation about the 2016 presidential election. Yeah. That is largely what was happening there is people who voted for Hillary Clinton were voting against Donald Trump and people who voted for Donald Trump were voting against Hillary Clinton. And we're seeing even more of that now in 2020, where you've got reams and reams of professional Republicans yes. advocating for Joe Biden, not because they're huge fans of Joe Biden or he's some conservative savior, but because he's not Donald Trump. And when we have turned our politics into a negative rather than an affirmative exercise, we've lost something very important. So step by step, well, okay, so for, first and foremost, I think what, what baffles me is like how much, how, how much of a sore spot people have to third parties, first and foremost. 
because of uh, Ross Perot, so many older people, it's like trauma to them that they voted for Ross Perot and, you know, Bill Clinton got elected Ended or whatever. Up with Bill Clinton, right, yes. Yeah. Um, I have literally, I, I had a, a family friend tell me that, that Ross Perot did, like, they worded it as though he did something to them. And I was like, no, like, it's fine. Like, it passed. But that's the feeling. Yeah. That is the feeling. It's so intensely personal. I know. So then, okay, so let's, what, what's your take on ranked choice voting? Like, can that save it? Like, what's... Wh- so, up front, I don't think anything can save it. Right, on its own. sure, right. Um, I, so, full disclosure, I'm actually a big fan of the Electoral College. Um, I know a lot of people aren't right now. A lot of people want to do away with it as well as the Senate because they think they are anti-democratic. Um, there is a fundamental missing piece of that understanding, which is we are not a nation. We are a nation comprised as a union of sovereign states. So we don't have a national election for president. We have 50 elections for president that elect electors who then go and choose the president. It's esoteric. It's outdated, perhaps. It's definitely antiquated. But that's our system. And I think that is a fundamentally important system because if North Dakota, South Dakota, you know, name all the little tiny states in population wise, if they are just going to be dominated by California and New York, why would they stay in the country? And the people who advocate just raw democracy usually do that when they think it's going to get them what they want, not because they have some principled belief that that is better. And frankly, I often find that people who want to get rid of the Electoral College have zero understanding of why it was put in place in the first place. And if it wasn't put in place in the first place, the United States of America would not exist. It never would have been started. So that's my sort of bias coming into this conversation. I love things like ranked choice voting. Anything that allows us to better reflect our preferences in our democratic expressions is better. The ultimate in that would be direct democracy. But we long ago lost the opportunity to do that unless we want to have like a 330 million person meeting, which (laughs) I've been in 30 person meetings. I don't want a 330 million person meeting. So we need to elect representatives. And that means build coalitions, make sacrifices, embrace trade-offs, etc. Ranked choice voting would allow me to express my preference for more options without having then to throw away my vote. I voted for Gary Johnson in 2016, and I was open about that on the air. You can't imagine how many people emailed me to say it was my fault that Donald Trump was president. Because <laughs> if I had just voted for Hillary Clinton, she might have won Wisconsin. And I just don't buy that. I do not buy yeah. that at all. It's not a zero-sum game. It's not a two-choice thing. In practical effect, it is. But ranked choice voting opens that up a little bit. I don't think that alone fixes the problem, but I like ranked choice voting. Yeah. Me too. I think it's a start, right? I mean... Yeah. And, and I think it works much better at the local level to get people used to it. And then you could roll it out on maybe a state level. And then if you actually got a couple of Green Party members or Libertarians or Socialists elected into a state legislature, now you really start forcing the existing two-party system to deal with these outside ideas. Yeah. Because... If you're a closely divided legislature and you've got a handful of people who are unaligned, they're essentially the decision makers, right? Whichever side is willing to court their interest is going to win. 
And so there's a lot to see said for bringing multiple parties into our two-party system as a way of forcing compromise. The alternative to that view is it could also ensure gridlock by just ensuring you'd never have a majority for anything. And oh. that's the sort of the negative possibility. Sure. Yeah, there's always there's always a trade-off, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, so things like ranked choice voting, I like that. Um, the, the idea of, like, mandatory voting, I'm not such a fan of that because, again, I, I'm a more of a personal liberty person, and I really think not voting is a democratic expression. Right. When we look at our national voter turnout rates and we see that it's like, you know, maybe 60 percent. So two out of five people who have the right to vote just decide not to. Yeah. Uh, again, I wish that meant anything to the elected representatives who are not engaging them. Um, but typically what that means is like, oh, well, you know, they, they just don't know anything. Or frankly, a lot of people opt out because experiencing politics is really unpleasant right now. As somebody who swims in that water professionally every day, it is really unpleasant right now. But the more people who check out of the process, the more we are seeding the process to hardcore partisans, extremists, uh, the monomaniacs, as I've been talking about on my show recently in my monologues, uh, the people who just prioritize one thing over everything. Uh, and you see it with the fight over the Supreme Court right now. Um, people who are just making stuff up out of whole cloth about, oh, this is what this means or this is what the history says. And it doesn't. They're just arguing what is ever in favor of their already held beliefs. And, and that is what's damaging our politics in a very fundamental way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. I'm even hesitant to go into specific like topics just because of like what you said just it's just not comfortable to wade those waters right now like and ultimately like the people that make it uncomfortable are those mono maniacs it's it's the yeah. people it's like why do I even care what they think anyway like they're not gonna approve of of any nuance you know but I'll tell you, Evan, as somebody who is professionally sharing my opinion on things on the air every day, if I share an opinion, I am guaranteed to hear from the one person who disagrees most strongly, right? The people who agree with me, it could be 90% of the audience. Most yeah. of them are not going to be motivated by agreement to write me an email. Sometimes people do, and I really appreciate that. <laughs> but the thing that's going to get you to weigh in and sound off is being angry or being afraid. And those are the animating emotions that now control our politics. And it's not bringing us to a better place. It's bringing us to a worse place. Yeah. Interesting. I, I agree completely, obviously. To me, like, sometimes it's hard to do this kind of thing because it's like I'm, I'm so in agreement. But, you know, you got to get used to, like, vocally agreeing because to me some of these things are obvious. But to some people, I think... And for so many people, I think they're in the same boat, like hearing this kind of thing from from someone that lives in their community that's in a position to, you know, ho hopefully inspire some people. I think yeah. I think they probably agree like, wow, yeah, we need to <laughs> politics suck right now. Basically. Yeah. And on that idea of voicing your agreement, I'll share a little anecdote that I heard. I uh, talked to a member of Congress. I, I've interviewed many members of Congress. I talked to one specifically off the record about speaking out against their side, right? I was like, why can't, you know, they told me they disagreed with their side on X issue. I said, why didn't you go public with that? And this member of Congress said, 
that when they speak publicly and they are supporting their own party, they're going to get crap from the other side. Right, so a Republican member of Congress is going to get nasty tweets and emails and phone calls from angry Democrats, and vice versa. A Democratic member is going to get that from conservatives. But for this person who happens to be a Republican, when they speak out against their own party, even mildly, the negative feedback they get from their own side, by volume, is 10 times greater. So again, back to that idea of sort of the business model and the incentives for media, is just not in favor of them getting nuanced and, and in detail. The incentive structure for members of Congress is not there to sort of speak truth to power and balance the arguments and recognize the nuance and all that stuff. They don't have the incentive structure to do that either because when they do, if they poke their head out even a little bit, their side is there and ready to clobber them back into compliance. And so as long as we have, and, and this is not the party leadership doing this, right? This is not yeah. the, the, the House whip who's doing this to this member. These are constituents, not even in their district, just people who read these comments and decide to weigh in and get really angry about it because their person on their side isn't being loyal to their side. Yeah. And that is a very, very dangerous place to be in a two-party system. So um, I, I want to take this back. Uh, okay local in a minute um but that incentive structure keeps coming up and i know it's a fundamental thing without answers right which which uh is is why it's tricky um i guess real briefly i would say that you have to have representatives who care more about the system than their own personal longevity and that's not again there's not a lot of incentives for that either um but you have to have people who'd be willing to run and even run as say a one term like i'm running right now pledging to never run for re-election again yeah and when i go in there i'm going to do x y and z the problem is in congress in two years you're not going to get any of that done yeah unless unless there's somehow a concerted movement of a bunch right. of people who are like we will not go past two terms um and right. we're just going for term limits like that's literally what we're doing right or campaign finance reform, which I actually think is the fundamental. If there was one reform that I could wave a magic wand and fix, it'd be campaign finance. Good to know. I, I, okay, so these these like national level things are so tantalizing to like try and solve. Uh, you know, we were just talking about how, how can we do this on a local level and then ground up. So rather than, I, I'm gonna resist the temptation to go into questions like, uh, I was gonna ask you about universal basic income as like, a, as it, does that fundamentally shift the incentives enough to like get genuine voices and you know, and, and all this, but um, I'm, I'm gonna pull it back okay. to local. Let's see if I can remember my thought here. Um, ah, shoot. Oh yeah, what do you think are, are the lowest hanging fruit in our in our region uh, in terms of ideas that that are more so policy that make the the structure that we already have in place? Um, so obviously, you brought up the the regional partnership type deal where um, what what was the term? Just as a the council of regional governments. Yeah, so bringing together um, that council of regional governments <laughs> to uh, to connect leaders of the community to to think of themselves as a 
as a larger group that can accomplish bigger things together. That's a great starting point. Now from a policy standpoint, whether it's something like getting a third party like involved or getting term limits or rank choice voting or uh, drug laws or uh, prison reform or police reform, what are like the lowest hanging fruits that we could, that you think Northeast Wisconsin could accomplish um, that that would be exemplary? Um, just to take a couple of the ones you mentioned right there, I think criminal justice reform, both at a like Northeast Wisconsin and Wisconsin level, but also at a national level, is like the next big wave of bipartisan compromise. Uh, back in the 90s, there was a big wave of compromise over welfare and entitlement reform. When Bill Clinton was trying to prove that he wasn't the leftist that everybody was trying to paint him as, he came along and got on board with things like school uniforms and et cetera, right? All of these quasi-conservative policies. I think something like criminal justice reform has a couple of things going for it. First, it contributes to social justice, which is a major priority for the Democratic Party. And it would contribute to fiscal solvency by reducing the cost of incarceration, which is a major priority of the Republican Party. So you've got both parties' top priorities encapsulated in one issue. The problem is it's a really hard issue to get right because you're talking fundamentally about people's public safety. And back to that notion that people are most animated by fear and anger, you wanna see some angry, fearful people, tell them that you're gonna release prisoners into their community or not lock up criminals in the first place right. because diversion courts and treatment courts and other things are better for those people and for our community in the long run that's I, just not intuitive to people right yeah. they for so long have watched the law and order on tv and, right. and the, the crime procedural shows and and listen to the rhetoric from politicians frankly that equate locking people up with keeping people safe and i think that fundamental argument has been proven false. We incarcerate far more people in this country than any other country in the world, and we are not getting better outcomes. Yeah. So to me, criminal justice reform would be a top priority, both because it does really, really good things for communities and for budgets, but also because I think it's the right thing to do, is to lock fewer people up, uh, address people more as humans than criminals, and find ways to address root causes in ways that reduce recidivism and therefore reduce the need for incarceration, which saves us money. Can, can I ask you this? Is, is like, as a percentage, obviously nothing's, like, I, I hate speaking in absolutes and, and I'm not going to even try to. As a percentage, is drug reform one of the biggest issues in within that scope of criminal justice reform? I think it is, um, mostly because you're talking about what, what would be termed nonviolent crime, right? When you are found in possession of drugs, even hard drugs, even large quantities of drugs, you haven't yet hurt someone. We're operating on the assumption that you are going to take that pound of heroin and distribute it to a bunch of people and some of those people could overdose. So we're going to arrest you and lock you up for a long time simply because you have that pound of heroin. Now, if that pound of heroin just sat on the table, it's not going to hurt anybody. 
right? It's when people choose to ingest that heroin that the potential for danger exists. So, and so I do think drug reform is a big part of it. I'm not necessarily on board for like across the board legalization. I'm not that kind of libertarian. <laughs> um, because I know that there are difficulties and trade-offs that come with that kind of policy. Uh, also, to the point earlier about corporate consolidation, a lot of places that are now moving towards decriminalization are doing so because high-level political donors have put uh, investments in place such that they can capture whatever legal drug market might be created. This happened in Ohio. I know for a fact this could have happened in Wisconsin had a certain governor been reelected in 2018. <clears throat> and uh, this is the kind of thing that makes good policy into bad policy is yeah. when you have people capturing the system or they're doing it for the wrong reason. So drug reform is an important thing because a lot of people are locked up for a not very good reason, in my opinion. Now, I've talked to Winnebago County Sheriff John Motts about this and he would never be on board with something like that. Law enforcement believes that marijuana leads to more further offenses. So he is not on board with decriminalizing marijuana. Okay, so how do we make the case for decriminalization to get law enforcement on board? You have to both argue that it's gonna reduce the demand on their forces and their budget, the jail, the officers for arrests and enforcement, and also we have this other piece we can put in place that means we're not gonna just unleash a bunch of you know drug addicts on the community and then you have to deal with that. Because drug addicts do create other problems in the community. And we have to be honest about that, whether it's traffic accidents or, or burglaries or other things. Drugs do have ripple effects. Um, but we need to be realistic about the cost-benefit analysis of each policy. So criminal justice is one of those that the benefit has long been assumed to be greater than the cost. And I think we're finding out that assumption was not correct. Yeah. I I uh, greatly appreciate your, your patience in in playing devil's advocate on, on those issues because especially being someone like yourself who believes in like, you know, individual rights, because I, I do ultimately think that it, it is an individual rights in a lot of ways issue because you're almost pre-diagnosing based on fear. And you, like you said, some evidence of choice people which even if you were somehow able to remove all drugs from society, probably would be people that don't have a purpose and would find some way to, to make trouble. But, Absolutely. Um, yeah. E even just you saying that, I wanted to like jump in and be like, yeah, but. <laughs> and that's, that's good though, because that's, uh, unfortunately we're not face to face in person for this conversation because that makes it more difficult. And you know, that's something maybe we should comment on the fact that all, this is my take anyway. Yeah. All of the things that have been working against healthy political dialogue and even just basic social cohesion, all of the forces that have worked against those good things have been magnified, exacerbated, and accelerated by the pandemic. Right? The fact that we can't be together, physically speaking, in many ways, contributes to the mental health crisis that we have. It also contributes to the political division that we're experiencing. And so, so many of these things, right? I don't know that you could have created a better test for our society. And I'll be very honest, I think our society is failing that test. Yeah, for real, that resonated with me hard. Like, 
I feel the same damn way. It's like, like you said, it's magnified. The mirror is up. Like, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to change? Are we going to dig our damn heels in the ground? And it's like, everyone, it's, I mean, you could say they, but like, who is it? It's not they, but the media or whatever, like the system we've been in has primed us to hope, like, you know, it seems in their benefit primed us to dig our heels in and, and divide and like we're doing it. And it's like, fuck, are you kidding yeah. me? Like, I'll mention one other aspect on this, which is a little higher level philosophical, but we are humans, obviously. We have been humans for a couple hundred thousand years, but we have only been what we would recognize as modern humans in modern civilization for like, you know, a couple of cent- a couple of millennia, right? A couple thousand years out of hundreds of thousands of years. And for most of that history, we were living under tyrants, yeah. kings or, or, you know, people who just ruled by whim. And life, frankly, sucked for most people. Yeah. <laughs> then around the Enlightenment, we started embracing liberal notions. And I don't mean liberal, conservative, political that way, liberal, classical liberal about freedom and individual rights and responsibility. And when those ideas took off from the Scottish Enlightenment and the English Enlightenment, they formed the foundation of the founding of this country. But the fundamental truth is those principles of liberal, classical liberalism that are applied in our system, what you might think of as a liberal democratic capitalist society that we have formulated here in America and in the West, around the world really, all of the things that make that work run counter to basic elements of our human nature. As animals, we are tribal. And babies are racist. You hear a lot of people be like, kids aren't born racist. Yes, they are, and there's research to prove it. We become humans by curbing our base human nature. We become, I shouldn't say we become human. We become greater than human by curbing those base instincts. And, And I can just add a very simple question. If you're a kid, what are you told? don't trust strangers but then you're an adult and we're like oh you need to embrace the diversity of the society and you should go reach out and make friends with people you don't know that is not who we are fundamentally right it is who we need to be to preserve the structures of the society and the economy that we have come to expect as normal in modern society but we can't forget that every single one of those advances was gained by controlling and curbing our base human instincts for tribalism and fear you know the flight or flight the flight or fight reflex is real still in us we have not evolved away from that and that's a good thing that's what makes us take our hand off a hot stove but it's also the same instinct that makes us scream at and assume the worst of somebody who's on the other side of a political debate and so while we might hope that we could get over all of that stuff we would only get over it by controlling it within ourselves it takes self-discipline and that is something in tragically short supply right now <laughs> as we live in a society that is more and more focused on immediate gratification. Yeah, so I, I would love to riff on that. I, I agree completely. And um, so first off, I just wanted to say I, something that came to mind when you were talking about the, the fact that modern humans have only existed for a few millennia uh, as far you know, as far as we understand it, and um, what's interesting to me, I guess, the notion was like, 
what kicked that off is first what my brain asked. And then I was like, oh, definitely like written language. Um, so it's like the media, <laughs> which is the OG media, you know, <laughs> yes. is like the thing that started this, this path we're on to, you know, and it, it's that, it's the yin and the yang. It's, it's the good with the trade off. It's, you know, it's, it's, it allows us to have this conversation we're having right now. You know, it's, yep. a, it's evolved from the printing press to these crazy contraptions in front of both of us. Yep. But um, so that, that's just an interesting observation, uh, first and foremost. Um, next, I want to say I'm not that convinced that it's the fight or flight that's causing it. I think that it's more something that's an artifact of our animal past like you said um which which i you know i wish to a degree that everyone was on that same boat but um but even i i do believe that there's probably a subsect of people that maybe like the non-evolution people who don't believe in that um might not be able to go out on this branch with us but yeah yeah um even though they would concede that humans aren't perfect, but they just wouldn't attribute it to, they wouldn't put the metaphors together and, and say, you know, whatever. Anyway, I think it's more uh, uh, an artifact of the fact that we're primates. And primates by nature, with the exception of maybe the bonobo chimpanzees, are pretty ego-driven, hierarchical, like male dominator beings. Sure. across the board and it's you know it's the male dominance for for reproduction or whatever it's it's power it's uh we as a as a classification it's not a species but as a whatever it would be a genus or a family or whatever yeah like we tend to lean into that you know there there is social aspects but it's like uh, you know, with a caveat, like, but I'll, I'll mess your ass up and, and you better not, you know, step on my toes. Right. I think, I think that somewhere along the line, like human beings have that in us. And, uh, and the question is like, yeah, how do we address that? And that's the hard question. And, uh, self-discipline is what you floated. Um, I think, I don't know if it's possible for that to solve the problem. And this is where, um, this is something I, I haven't talked too much about publicly, but I talk to people like close to me about, but it almost seems to be like our way out of this might be the question of like, well, what are things available to us that reduce our ego? You know what I mean? And it, yes. it could be, uh, it could be practices like yoga or something or whatever works for you. Yep. But as a mass implementation, and it's funny because it seems like what a manifestation of power, ego, ego and hierarchy is in society is against this, but is like plants. It's, it's, it is some of those drugs that people are afraid of, you know, it's, um, and there's different avenues but um things that make us have transcendental experiences you know and yeah and ultimately that forces us to connect back to nature yeah. and 
unfortunately, I, the only other way we get those things, other than those plant, you know, you know, whether it's uh, psychedelics or marijuana, is near-death experiences. And it's like, we just keep confronting those over and over. You know what I mean? Like, like confronting our, our base humanity and our, our vulnerability. Exactly. Yeah. No, I talk a lot about humility um, uh, in my monologues. In addition to the full radio show, I do a, a, a monologue as part of that show every day called The Takeaway, which is also available as a podcast wherever you get podcasts. Uh, the Takeaway from Fresh Take. And it's about seven, eight minutes every day, and it's kind of a philosophical riff on whatever's on my mind. And that's where I've been talking about monomania. And humility comes up often as the key thing that we can all do to try to improve things. You know, you we've, we've gone round and round a bit on the, what will solve the problem. Right. I've kind of gone away from that kind of thinking or phrasing. I just want to say what can make things better? Because <laughs> yeah. I don't know that anything is going to fix any of this, but I'm trying to move in the direction of improvement. And so I'm just looking for anything to sort of steer the battleship in the right yeah. direction. And humility is a huge one. Absolutely. That That's it, though. It's like, it, like you know, think about it from a perspective of like how do we remove you know w walk away from this everyone wants it to be a pill a drug something quick and it's like no we need something that's going to sustainably put us in a position to openly address the problems aka like ourselves every day you know what i mean and it's yeah. like yeah well how do we and do that? frankly one of the things that can cultivate humility is to confront ideas that you don't already agree with, right? Back to that idea of a diverse media diet. If you are reading a very, very smart person making a very strong argument that you totally disagree with, that's gonna show you a lot of ways and or things you haven't thought of, you know, weaknesses in your own argument. That's a great way <laughs> to get knocked down a peg or two uh, in that intellectual regard. If you're not going to do that with interpersonal, with people who can do that, read books, listen to podcasts, people who challenge your thinking, because it forces you to re-examine your priors and your beliefs, and you come out not necessarily stronger in your beliefs. Maybe some people do. I hope what it would do is cause people to come out better understanding your beliefs. And the better you understand them, you should recognize that you can't be as sure as you think you were, right? That, that 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 overconfidence is one of the weaknesses, and to be humble allows us to open our minds and learn new things, but it then also makes possible things like compromise and trade-off. Yeah. You know what's interesting, Josh, is I feel like I'm, I'm super optimistic about the future. Um, I think we're going to lose some species in the process, but um, <laughs> or, or things are going to look different, but... You yeah. know, something's going to happen and it's going to be, it's going to work out in some form. But, um, ah, oh, shoot. Keep losing my train of thought today. Um, basically, basically, the, like we talked about earlier, confronting this situation, like confronting this, uh, epidemic pandemic we're in now and that process of like reevaluating what does our workday look like what does our relationship to social media look like what is our relationship to ourself our free time our job look like mm -hmm. i do believe that that on a grassroots level is like like the next 10 years are going to be so insane with how people do work-life balance and that's like that's it you know what i mean like 
I think to a degree, like how, how you work through this, if we all can work through this on an individual level and come out better somehow, it's like you're going to get someone who like reduces their hours at work to 25 hours a week, maybe gets paid 80% of what they were doing, but they get all their job done. And they're gonna go start some grassroots media movement. They're gonna start some, they're gonna volunteer uh, with some person who runs on the campaign of only putting in term limits. And like, I just think because so many people have had to grapple with the question of what do I have to lose in these times, like I, I really do think good things are on the horizon and, and I've seen it. I've seen, I've seen people, you know, that, that I thought were one thing go into another thing and um, I've just heard awesome stories of people pivoting ultimately yeah. and, you know, and I think that's, that's a, a, a bright spot to, to yeah. look forward to. I, I agree with you, and I, I think that people can find ways to make things better out of adversity, right? That's the key. That's basically human history. Um, in this instance, in this moment, there's still a lot of people facing a lot of pain, of course, the deaths, etc. None of that anybody wants to see. But to the extent that we can find benefits out of it, I think you're right. A lot of people are going to reevaluate priorities, examine how we do things. Do we really need to... F I I interviewed former Congressman Reed Ribble today on my show. He is now a lobbyist for the Roofing Contractors Association. And I asked him about this exact question. I said, Reed, you used to travel quite a bit, didn't you? Has that been changed? He said, Josh, I was on a plane every day of the week sometimes. I haven't traveled in three months. He hasn't left home in three months. I imagine his home life, his family life, his marriage, I bet all those things are probably better, given that he's not on a plane every day of the week for three months, right? And that is something we can all find. But I think the fundamental aspect to sort of loop it back is you can't change what you're already doing until you're open to the belief that what you're doing could be improved. Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, I think, uh, I think, I think, I mean, when it comes to real life, which is what you you know, me here and, and you wherever you're watching and, and Josh, ultimately like that's, that reality is I think getting reevaluated in a great way and we just need to remember that we're not the system, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of commentary about society that paints a lot of outcomes as inevitable. And I don't believe that anything is actually inevitable. Nothing is going to happen automatically, right? There are forces of nature like gravity, et cetera. Some of that stuff is beyond our control. But you can't assume anything is going to happen in a political outcome that's contingent on human action because right. you never know what humans are going to do. I'll, for a moment, venture into the news of the day, which is the Supreme Court confirmation hearings going on in the Senate for Judge Amy Coney Barrett. And there's a big argument right now about whether or not she's gonna be the deciding vote to overturn the Affordable Care Act should she be confirmed. And when Democrats do it about conservative judges or when Republicans do it about liberal judges, I hate it always, they act like they know exactly how a judge is gonna rule on every single issue or case right. because the party of the person who nominated them. 
And that is the height of intellectual arrogance. Yeah. To assume you know how this judge is going to rule on complex cases that literally haven't even been brought yet is absurd. That's let a- alone that, oh, well, we know how she's going to vote on the Affordable Care Act based on these writings and this. Listen, that was Judge Amy Coney Barrett. That's not Justice Amy Coney Barrett. And, and you could say the same thing for, for anybody on the left, too. This is yeah. not a partisan argument. I'm trying to make the point that we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Right? Nobody would have guessed that John Roberts was going to be the deciding vote to preserve the Affordable Care Act several years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we don't know. And, and to the extent that we can embrace the I don't know we are going to do much better as a society because in that uncertainty is the path to additional knowledge. Love it. Definitely. That's yeah. It's a massive character judgment to just assume that someone's not going to honor like the role that they're taking on. Right. Yeah. Completely based in fear. I, um, we should, Evan, uh, I could riff with you like know, this all night, I know. but my little puppy is uh, decided <laughs> it's time to go potty. So I think I gotta, I think I gotta hang it up. Yep, no worries. Um, thank you so much, Josh, for joining. Um, and this be, is a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm, Let's I'm, do a post-election version. Yeah, I'm down. I feel like uh, I, I'm glad that that people like you live in our region, and I think. Uh, thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that you found your way into uh, into the role you're in now. I think, uh, I, I believe I said this. If I didn't, I wrote it down that you're, you're a local treasure. Um, and I think, uh, I think we have good things coming. If it's not at the national level, it'll be at the local level. So um, thanks, Josh, for joining. Thanks, everyone uh, still watching. If anyone's watching this later, have a good one. And definitely check out Fresh Take. Um, is there a way to get the your? You said that you have a seven-minute post take. Uh, is the takeaway the is t- the monologue. So if, if people want to get all my stuff, you can get it anywhere you get podcasts. You can subscribe to Fresh Take, which is the radio show that's five days a week. You get the takeaway, which is the monologue from the radio show that's five days a week, and then I do a weekly podcast called Civic Revival that is really focused in on preserving and reviving the rule of law, and I partner with attorney Kristen Shireman on that one. So I've got three different shows that folks can subscribe to wherever they get podcasts: Fresh Take, The Takeaway, and Civic Revival. Awesome. And then, do you have like a do you do an email where you batch these together? Do you if you don't, you should. Yeah, I probably should, but uh, <laughs> my technical acumen is lacking. Um, and so, no, I, I don't have uh, newsletters or, or uh, subscri- RSS feeds or any of that cool stuff. I have a listener who has offered to help put all that stuff together. So maybe in year five of Fresh Take, we'll get to that, that yeah. level of sophistication. Um, but no, I'm, uh, I'm just lucky that I get the guests that I do and, and get the show out every day um, because it feels like it's a hamster wheel just to keep up with all of that stuff. Um, um, just to get the show done itself. But it's available where any, anywhere you get podcasts or you can go to whby.com and you can find links to all of it there. For sure. Uh, thank you. And I mean, it's funny you say that because like, I, I mean, I'm in year two of this and we are not, we do not have a system for getting these as podcasts yet. But like, I know it'll happen. So yeah. I, I would take that, I would take that listener up on it because I think, um, I think it would help both you and, and the people who um, appreciate your work. So I, not not to put you in a rush, but I would definitely take that, that person up on that. 
Well, I will let Mike know that uh, you endorsed his <laughs> offer. He'll be happy to hear that. And yes, I will get around to that at cool. some point of putting all that stuff together. Uh, but Evan, the opportunity to share my perspectives and my um, my other products with your audience is really uh, a great treat and, and a real honor and, and thank you for that. I know you've been working really hard to highlight local businesses of all different kinds and really helping other people through your business. And so um, I, I send the kudos back to you as well. Appreciate being here. Thanks for the invitation. I look forward to doing it again. Awesome. Thanks, Josh. Have a good Absolutely. one. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. It truly means a lot to me. 